You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So we've just heard Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. And these are astonishing verses. They conclude the section from chapter 3, verse 6, through to chapter 4, verse 11, which we've been looking at over the last several weeks. And they set up a new uh, new section in verse 14 through chapter 5. And in this way, I think verse, verse 12 and verse 13 are kind of like a bridge in this passage. If... If you like to make notes or if you like to highlight your Bible, this, this, these, this, these are two verses to highlight. I want you to imagine, if you, if you look at verses 12 and 13, imagine if you can that verses 12 and 13 are standing off the page almost in 3D. And they're linking together what comes before it and what comes after it. And this bridge, which is verses 12 and 13, this bridge is the only way into town, okay? Nobody gets from chapter 4, verse 11 to chapter 4, verse 14 without going over this bridge here in verses 12 and 13. And that's why today we're just looking at these two verses. We're looking at just two verses today, verse 12 and verse 13, and we're going to see here two life-changing truths. And when I say life-changing, like, I, I mean literally these are life-changing truths. These truths make all the difference in our lives, and I'm, I'm really eager to show you this. So first, let's pray, ask for God's help, and then we'll dig in. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word and for your power. And we pray now by your spirit, send out your word this morning and accomplish all that you will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The first truth I want you to see here from verse 12 is that the Word of God is living and active like God Himself. The first thing to see here is the first part of that first sentence in verse 12. So everybody, if you can, look at verse 12 at those first nine words in verse 12, and we're gonna try this, okay? I want us to read it together, all right? The first nine words of verse 12, ready? For the word of God is living and active. Well done. The word of God is living and active. And the big question here as we open up and start in verse 12 is what is the word of God that the writer of Hebrews is talking about? The phrase the word of God is used four times in this book in a pretty tight amount of space. The only other book in the New Testament where this phrase shows up as many times as it does here in Hebrews is in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, the phrase the word of God is used 12 times. If we count the phrase, the word of the Lord, that's used another nine times in the book of Acts. And so like in the book of Acts, the word of God and its activity, its power, its movement, its advance, is important here in Hebrews 2. But what does the writer mean when he says the word of God? What's he talking about? Well, in the immediate context, we know that he at least is talking about the Old Testament passage that he quoted in chapter 3, verse 7. Glance back to chapter 3, verse 7, 
And you can see there the long quote from Psalm 95. Now, remember there in verse 7 that when the writer starts the quote, he starts the quote by saying, as the Holy Spirit says. And that verb there to say is present active, which means we could translate that as the Holy Spirit is saying. So what's happening here, chapter 3, verse 6, the writer says, we are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, 3-7, as the Holy Spirit is saying, and then he quotes Psalm 95. And the, the rest of that section is his exposition, his sermon, so to say, on Psalm 95. And in that exposition, he quotes certain parts of Psalm 95 four times over again. So without a doubt, we know that in the writer's mind and in our, in our minds as we're reading this passage, when he says the word of God, he's thinking Psalm 95, right? The writer of Hebrews is referring to Psalm 95 when he says the word of God, but he's not only referring to Psalm 95. He's not even only talking about the Old Testament, but I think that when the writer of Hebrews says the word of God, he means Psalm 95, he means the Old Testament, but he also means the apostles' teaching, which is what becomes the New Testament. Remember what chapter 1 has told us, the beginning of this book, Jesus has come. God has now spoken to us through his Son, which doesn't mean that God has spoken to us two different words. It doesn't mean that the Old Testament is one word from God, and now the message of Jesus is another word. But together, God has given us one unified word. The Hebrew scriptures that point to Jesus and the announcement of Jesus preached by the apostles, it's one word. The Old Testament and the New Testament are one message from God about Jesus which is why it is both biblically warranted and theologically correct to call this book the Word of God. This book that we hold in our hands is the Word of God. And you've probably heard that before if you've been around church, right? It's kind of churchy jargon to call the Bible the Word of God. But do we really know what that means when we say that. Do we, do we have really any idea what it means that we call this book the Word of God? In this book, in these words, through actual language, we have God's Word spoken to us. We read this book, and in our reading of this book, we can perceive the mind of God. This book, the Bible, is what the Holy Spirit is saying. The Word of God is living and active. And it makes sense to us that the Word of God is living and active when we remember that God himself is living and active. Our doctrine of Scripture and our doctrine of God will always be
be closely tied together. You will never find someone with a low view of God who has a high view of Scripture. High view of God, high view of Scripture. God himself is living and active. And therefore, God's word is always, as it were, an extension of himself in his living activity. And that's actually true of language just in general. And, and I think we all know what this is like. If you've spent any like solid amount of time with, with young children, you, you know exactly what this is like. Have you ever noticed how exhausting it can be to spend a solid chunk of time with a three-year-old? You guys know what I'm, you know what I'm talking about, right? It's so, it can be exhausting. And you can, like, what, what makes it so tiring? Well, here's, here's, one, here's one reason it can be so tiring. It's because you are constantly speaking directives. I mean, you don't have to do a lot, right? You're just in the house, maybe. And you're exhausted because you're constantly saying, don't touch that, put that back, get out of the bathroom, eat your lunch, stay in your seat, stop changing clothes. Right? You're just constantly saying, you, you speak a lot of words one way. And every time you speak, it's an extension of yourself. You're expending energy in your words. In a way, when you speak, you're constantly committing yourself. You have to stand behind what you say, right? And if you keep doing that for a long stretch of time, you're going to get tired because it's verbal action. Verbal action. Speaking is an extension of ourselves. And as parents, that means it's an extension of our authority. Because here's the thing. If little Ruthie disobeys what I say, and she, this is just, she doesn't, okay, because she's perfect. She's our best kid, and all of our kids know it, right? She's amazing. But just pretend that little Ruthie disobeys what I say. If she were to disobey what I say, she's disobeying me. And we see this right away in the Bible. God gave Adam and Eve a spoken command. He gave them words. And when they disobeyed God's word, they disobeyed God. The word of God is an extension of God himself. It is God's verbal action. And because God himself is living and active, his word is living and active, which means this, because the Bible is the word of God, what the Bible says, God says. God is actively speaking through this book in such a way that to receive and listen to the words of this book is to receive and listen to God himself. It's astonishing. Do you see how astonishing that is? Take, take for example, 
When you read in the Bible a promise from God, when you read a promise from God and you trust in that promise, you're trusting in God himself. Matthew 28, 20, we say this every Sunday in our commission. It's an amazing promise from Jesus. After he commissions us to make disciples, he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus tells us that. That's a promise from Jesus to us. And when we read that promise, or when we hear that promise in words, in human language, like what Dan was saying, when we read or we hear those words, when we trust in those words, when we believe in those words, we are trusting in Jesus himself. Because Jesus stand behind, he stands behind the words he says. And that's true for all of Scripture. All of Scripture is the living activity of God Himself. All its promises, all its warnings, all its wisdom, all its narrative, the Word of God is living and active like God Himself. And there are so many implications for this. This really does, it really does shape how we live as Christians and how we worship together, like what's happening right now in this moment. This, this strange thing that's happening now, of me standing here and talking to all of you, we call this a sermon, right? It's the action of preaching. And the reason that we preach the Bible and not just stuff that we're making up is because we believe that speaking and explaining the text of Scripture, speaking and explaining these words on this page is speaking and explaining what God is saying. That's why the sermon, this moment, is the center of our liturgy. The preacher, which today I, I get to do it today, the preacher delivers to you, to us, the word of God that is living and active. I'm not giving you, in this moment, I'm not giving you my thoughts or my opinions or my advice. That is not my job. I'm a messenger. That's what's happening right now. I'm a messenger. And in dependence upon the Holy Spirit, with this book being opened before us, we together, including me, even in this moment, we are sitting under and hearing from God in his word. This is an amazing moment, this thing that we do every week. Like right now, God by his Holy Spirit is speaking through his book. And what I'm doing with his help is I'm just trying to show you what it says. Because what this book says is what God is saying. The word of God is living and active like God himself right now. And the word is living and active in a particular way, and in that particular way, 
is really important in Hebrews chapter 4 for the entire argument the writer's been making. This is the second and last thing I want us to see. Okay? The Word of God is living and active like God Himself. Number two, the living and active Word of God is our only hope of believing. Look back at verse 12. Now notice it starts with the word for. And that little conjunction for, which we, we've seen before, it's meant to be a grounds to what's been said previously. It's like, it's like saying because. So what was said before verse 12 is because of what is now said in verse 12. So then what has the writer been saying before verse 12? Well, he says in verse 11, look at verse 11, he says, let us, which includes both himself and the readers, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Remember, he's, he's talking Psalm 95. He's still talking Psalm 95. The idea of entering rest, entering God's rest, means to enter God's salvation. It's to be God's house, 3.6. It's to share in Christ, 3.14. To rest in God is to be saved by God. And remember, as Pastor David Mathis showed us last week, the opportunity to enter God's rest remains open. Like, it's available right now. We can experience the salvation of God today, today, right now. And the way that the writer of Hebrews makes that case is he shows us that the rest or, or, or the salvation that was offered in Joshua's day was incomplete. Now we know, we've been reading through Joshua in our Bible reading plan, we know that that Joshua, he led the people of Israel into the promised land, and he led the conquest of their enemies. But how did they end up going for Israel? How did they end up, how, how'd they fare? We know the story. It didn't go well for Israel because they didn't have faith. I just was reading in Psalm 98 this past week, Psalm 98 is a reflection on Israel's history. And in that reflection, the, the psalmist is just repeating the theme of their unbelief. Psalm 78, verse 33, they did not believe in God. They did not trust in his saving power. Verse 32, in spite of all of this, all of God's provision, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. Verse 42, they did not remember his power. Verse 56, they tested and rebelled against the most high God. And everybody knows this about Israel. It's the most obvious thing when you read the Old Testament. It's super clear that they were faithless. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, he's saying, yeah, Joshua did not give Israel lasting rest. His leadership was ultimately ineffectual. And, and so there remains rest right now for us to enter. The salvation of God is available today. And therefore, let us strive to enter that rest. Don't be like unbelieving Israel. 
That's what he's saying. And when he says that in verse 11, I don't know about you, but I'm reading this, and I know about how it went for Israel. I've, I, I read what he says here about how it went for Israel, and I want to know, how am I going to be any different? Right? How is it going to be any different for us? Israel failed to believe. They failed to trust God. And on what basis do we have any hope that our situation will be different from theirs? You get the question? How do we know that we will not end up being faithless like Israel? That's the question after verse 11. On what basis do we think we can actually strive to enter God's rest and experience his salvation? How do we know that we're not going to fail to believe like Israel? Well, verse 12 tells us it's because the word of God is living and active. And living and active in a particular way. And the way that is described here for the living activity of the word this metaphor here, it's the message. Like, it's the thing to see in these verses. It's the whole point. One commentator I read this past week said that these two verses in this metaphor is an absolute masterpiece. Look at this. Verse 12. For the word of God is living and active. Now, what way exactly? Well, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, the main metaphor here is this sword. That's, that's the image, okay? Everything else here is, is explaining what that sword does. But the meaning, the image of this sharp two-edged sword is really important, and it's actually better translated as a sharp two-edged knife. In the Greek, the word for sword or knife is the same, and it's used in different ways. The context is what determines the meaning. In, in some cases, this word means a big sword of judgment. In other cases, this same word means a small dagger or a small knife. In fact, in the book of Joshua, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this same word is used there to describe the knife that is used to perform circumcision. They didn't do circumcisions with big swords, okay? That's, Pretty sure they didn't, okay? It was a small knife. They used a small knife, and because this knife was small and sharp on both sides, which is what the text says, the knife was used as a scalpel. The image here in Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 is the image of a scalpel. Don't think big, long sword, think scalpel. And that image actually fits 
with the way it's described here, this sword or this two-edged scalpel, what does it do? Look what the text says. What does it do? It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. Now, what does that sound like? This is a small knife that is meticulously cutting. What's that describing? Surgery, right? This is surgery. This is a delicate surgery. That's the point of mentioning the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. The idea is that they're kind of the same. They're sort of inseparable, or at least it's not easy for us to discern the differences of soul and spirit. We can't look at a bone and see the clear dividing line between the bone and the bone marrow, right? You have to get into it. And what we can't do, where we can't go, the Word of God can. That's the point. The Word of God, the scalpel that is the Word of God, can cut into the innermost parts of who we are. That is to say, the Word of God can discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How are we doing? Hang with me here, okay? I want you to see this. Look at the last line of that verse, verse 12 there. The last line there that mentions the heart, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That line is meant to make the metaphor plain. The point is that the Word of God reaches our hearts in ways nothing else can. Which is really good to know if we've been tracking with the argument here in Hebrews 3 and 4, because our hearts are a problem. We've seen that. We saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 3, verse 12, that the, the heart is the reason that Israel fell away. It's the reason they did not believe. Chapter 3, verse 9, Israel went astray in their hearts. In verse 12, we see it's a hardened heart that leads to unbelief. Why are they unbelieving? Because they got a hard heart. And so, if we are going to end up differently than Israel, if we are going to believe, we need something or we need someone to work on our hearts. We need someone to pierce through, to cut through the hardness and the layers and the complexity of our hearts, to use the biblical imagery. If we are going to believe, then we must have a heart surgery. We must have a heart circumcision, which is exactly what God promised. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 4. Moses says, speaking of a future day, and Yahweh your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That promise in Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 is the promise 
of the new covenant. Moses prophesied it. Jeremiah and Ezekiel describe it in more detail. God promised that one day in the future, he would send his spirit to effect in us what we cannot. The spirit would remove our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. God promised that he would give us new hearts that believe. God promised to change our hearts. That's what the writer of Hebrews is describing here. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, is describing how God circumcises the heart. And it's the only hope we have to not end up faithless like Israel. How do we know that we're going to be different? How do we know that we're going to believe when they didn't? It's because God circumcises our hearts. It's because the word of God is living and active and cuts us at our innermost parts. That's what makes us vulnerable and receptive to the word. That's what verse 13 is saying. No creature is hidden from his sight. And now his is speaking of God. And so the writer of Hebrews has been talking about the word of God. Now he's talking about God himself, because remember, the two are closely related. God's word, God's sight, sees all. Track with this, okay? When the heart is circumcised, the person is naked and exposed before God. This is a, this is a sensitive surgery. The word of God puts our hearts just out there in the open, laid bare before God. And then it's to God, it's God to whom we must give account. And this is a really interesting thing that the writer does here. We saw the writer of Hebrews do this a couple weeks ago, but the last word there in verse 13, translated account, is actually the same word at the beginning of verse 12. Both are the words logos, which means word. So verse 12 starts with God's word. Verse 13 ends with our word or our account. And what's implied here is our faith. Our account or our word to God after the work of God's word on us is to believe. We surrender, we confess our faith. And we actually see this in the book of Acts, this, this exact metaphor. After Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter two, Luke says of the crowd who was listening, now when they heard this, when the crowd heard this, which was the gospel preaching by Peter, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? See, they're vulnerable, what do we do? 
Their hearts are exposed. Their hearts are laid bare. Their hearts are circumcised. And in surrender, they say, what do we do? And Peter says, believe. Believe. Confess your faith. In Jesus, after the word of God cuts into our hearts, we respond with the confession of faith. That's how we're not going to be like faithless Israel. That's how. That's how. This is how we're going to believe. The word of God cuts through to our hearts and makes us believe. That is the promise of the new covenant, and that is our only hope And because that's the case, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, which is next week. See, this is about hope. This is hope for us of how we can believe. Two life-changing truths here, verses 12 and 13. The word of God is living and active like God himself. And the living and active word of God is our only hope of believing. But how exactly now are those truths life-changing? What difference do those truths make in our lives? Well, there's a lot we could say, but I want to close with just one application, like one application with two parts, okay? I want to say it broadly first like this. In light of what we see here in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, we should truly appreciate the power of the Word of God. And we, 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 that means we should, we should honor and truly appreciate the power of God's Word. We want to honor and surrender to the power of God's Word in our lives. To get more practical, this means first that we should be thankful The only reason that any of us are here in this moment with faith is because of the power of God's word. We know that, right? You you feel that? Like, that's the only reason we're here is because the word of God has broken into our lives. The word of God has pierced into our hearts. And he has given us new hearts to believe. And the power of God's word in our lives is not just for initial conversion, but it's also for our endurance. It's not a one and done thing, it's a continued thing. The living and active word of God continues to pierce the heart. The word of God continues to be effective in us, and we should receive the word of God with that expectation. In our private worship at home or in our corporate worship here together, in everything in between, would that we gratefully humble ourselves before the powerful word of God. Ancient words ever true changing me and changing you. We have come with open hearts. Oh, let the ancient words impart. Every time we come to this book. Lastly, 
when we truly appreciate the Word of God, when we, when we truly appreciate and surrender to the power of the Word of God, that will shape our ministry of encouragement to one another. We saw a couple weeks ago that we have a profound obligation as the church together. The means that God uses for us to endure in faith is our encouraging words to one another. And what do you think, as the church, what do you think we say to one another as that encouragement? To encourage one another, what are we actually saying? Well, what better words could we say to one another than the very words of God? I want you to know this is not just a pastor thing, speaking the word in this church. We are all called to live this way together. And I pray that God would do this in our church. That this, this kind of word-saturated encouragement would just be in the air of this place. I just want it just to be who we are, that we would encourage one another by speaking the, God, speaking the word of God to one another. And in speaking the word of God to one another, that we would see the power of God at work. The Word of God is living and active, like God Himself. And the Word of God that is living and active is our only hope of believing, always. And that's what brings us to this table. Because at this table, the bread and the cup represent the body and blood of Jesus. And when we eat the bread, And when we drink the cup, in those moments, we are receiving Jesus by faith, which means we are receiving the Word of God in person, symbolized here in this bread and cup, expressing our faith union with Him. And when we do that, when we eat and when we drink, it's an evidence and a declaration that God has indeed given us new hearts. And so if you're here this morning and that's your story, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we invite you to eat and to drink with us. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.